Welcome to Making Moves, a podcast presented by the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. Today's episode focuses on gender equity in sport, featuring an interview with Diane Williams, Carol Oglesby, and Kim Turner. This conversation is hosted by Kim Woozy. This is McKenna Duda, your podcast host. I'm a Cal State East Bay alum, former collegiate, now recreational runner, and I just recently earned my bachelor's degree in kinesiology. I operate within Orange County, California as a sports manager, plus I direct and write the scripts for this pod. So glad to be here again. Here, we'd like to serve our audience by educating and also inspiring y'all to feel empowered through sport and social justice. All athletes, sports fans, and social justice advocates are welcome. For women's sporting events, that is, knowledge is power. And that can lead to conscious actions towards supporting women in sport. After all, your actions and time reveal your priorities. I encourage y'all to prioritize women in sport by attending female sporting events, turning on a women's sports game, and simply learning the powerful and captivating stories of dominating female forces in sports. Let's be mindful and support women in sport. Gender equity in sport is special for this season. This conversation details the importance of celebrating the success of Title IX, contributions from the AIAW, and the move towards sport for all. However, there must also be the acknowledgement of the disproportionate representation of BIPOC women. Resources, space, representation, and access are all matters to consider when it comes to who can partake in a sport. Gender equity seems to be a source of pride, yet leaps and bounds remain to achieve this scenario. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Making Moves. My name is Kim Woozy. I'm your host today, and it is my pleasure to chat with Carol Oglesby, Diane Williams, and Kim Turner today on our episode around gender equity. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our amazing lineup of guests today. First up is Carol. Carol Oglesby earned a PhD in kinesiology, the study of human movement at Purdue University in 1969 and a PhD in counseling at Temple University in 1999. Carol's scholarly career has been devoted to growth and development in two areas, women's gender studies in sport and sports psychology. She was awarded the AIAW Award of Merit, NAGWS Honor Fellow and Women's Sports Foundation Billie Jean King Award. Carol was principal author and contributor for a UN division for the advancement of women monograph entitled Women, Gender Equality, and Sport, which was translated into four languages and released in March of 2008. Welcome, Carol, to our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Next up, we have Diane Williams, who is a professor of kinesiology at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, where she teaches classes on the social, cultural, and historical aspects of sport and physical cultures in the United States. Her research focuses on alternative sport cultures, 
an interest that derives from her background outside of youth sport as a dancer, as well as her experience as an athlete, coach, seventh grade teacher, activist, and roller derby skater. Welcome, Diane. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. And last but not least, we have Kim Turner, who serves as the director of the Gender Equity Initiative at Coaching Corps, advancing sports-based gender equity for girls, coaches, schools, and community programs. Kim has nearly a decade of experience as a nonprofit Title IX attorney with Legal Aid at Work's Fair Play for Girls and Sports Project. She presents for diverse audiences on Title IX and related law, advocates for equity-spurring legislation, and provides technical assistance and rights on gender equity in youth sports issues. Before Cardoza Law School, she worked for U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein in the National League of Cities in Washington, D.C. Kim coaches youth sports, played Division I college volleyball for Brown University, and enjoys all pickup games with family, friends, and colleagues in California's Bay Area. Welcome, Kim. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. We always start off with just a quick little icebreaker question. Um, would love to just know what is everyone's beverage of choice? Any kind of liquid, your drink of choice. I'm, I'm, I've got one right here, a little coffee mug right beside me. And is there coffee inside? Oh yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> awesome. Can't go wrong with coffee. Thanks, Carol. How about you, Diane? I'm going to have to say coffee as well, particularly defending a dissertation and then the pandemic. It's been a lot of comfort coffee. <laughs> Excellent. All right. How about you, Kim? Uh, I love Carol's focus on what you have next to you. So I have uh, a tea here called Bengal Spice. It's celestial seasonings and it's like a game changer. It's a life changer. It's amazing. So Bengal Spice Celestial Seasoning, it's decaf, but it's super delicious. And like we cannot not have it in the house because it's so wonderful. Excellent. Well, I'm also a fan of hot beverages and I will say that I can't start my day without just, I just do one cup of coffee. So I don't get too crazy, but definitely the first thing in the morning is coffee for me. So great. Um, all right, well, let's kick this off with first Kim. Um, you're currently the director of gender equality initiative at coaching core. Can you tell us a little bit about coaching core and your role there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so after being with Fair Play for nearly a decade, I was really excited to come over to Coaching Corps uh, a couple months ago, and I've been very long associated with Coaching Corps as a youth sports coach. I first got to know them as a coach and as a collaborator, and I'm lucky to be now the director of the Gender Equity Initiative, and um, essentially in that role, I am frankly harnessing all the great gender equity work that the organization has been doing uh, for the last two decades because helping girls, especially BIPOC girls in low-income communities with sports opportunity has been a focus of Coaching Corps forever. Uh, but I'm also helping to sort of sharpen and even amplify further that focus. Um, and I'm excited to be doing that as well with Positive Coaching Alliance because our nonprofit is merging with Positive Coaching Alliance um, in just a little while. Uh, so we're going to have an even larger nonprofit presence in the country, helping uh, in particular girls and BIPOC girls in low-income communities and women in their coaching of youth sports, as well as males as allies and as coaches of girls in sport. Um, so in a nutshell, my gender equity initiative work is focused on getting more girls into the game, 
especially those who have been marginalized and unable to access sport or who are facing inequity in their sports and getting more women coaches out there, particularly BIPOC women coaches. Um, and so those are two focal points. And, uh, and then all things gender equity in the sense that we know that gender equity extends beyond girls and women, you know, in the traditional sense, um, we're talking about LGBTQ youth inclusion, uh, making sure that everyone of any gender is able to access sports um, and, and coaching opportunities and helping the community through sports. So that's that's pretty much what I'm doing right now. Thank you, Kim, for sharing that. And just a fun personal story is that when I first met you, um, you were at Legal Aid at work and uh, we had a fun connection point because your mom is now an inductee of the skateboarding hall of fame. Like what are like such a small world. So for our skate, our skateboarder fans out there, you know, that's just an extra point for skateboarding because your mom had you and you're doing amazing work. And so shout out, shout out to your mom, Kim. Thank you. I have to say two quick things is that, you know, I, I could go on all day about my mom's influence on me as a, as an athlete, as a, as a sport person, as an equity advocate, Uh, But she was a really amazing athlete growing up in skateboarding and volleyball. She played for our U.S. national team in volleyball, um, as well as my brother and she both have national championships from UCLA. And I just say that because I'm the shortest in my family at 5'10". And I'm terrible at volleyball compared to them, (laughs) even though I played in college. So I'm humble. I'm very humble. Um, But also just a shout out because my mom did kinesiology in college at UCLA and loved um, majoring in kinesiology. So I know there's some kinesiology students that will be listening to this. And, you know, just want to flag how lucky I feel that I had a mom that believed in me playing sports and my brother and I playing sports growing up. And part of my mission is to make sure any kid, regardless of gender, race, socioeconomics, background, zip code, feels that same support that I had. I was lucky to have growing up. I just want that good feeling and that encouragement to be in every kid's home and in every place in this country and beyond. Awesome. Thank you, Kim. Um, I want to move over to chat with Diane a little bit. Um, Diane, you wrote an article featuring, uh, featured in the Washington Post where you actually shared about the Association for the Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, which is AIAW for short. Um, and, and Carol, you actually served as AIAW's first president. Um, for those of us who, or maybe our listeners who are not familiar with AIAW, can you share just a little bit of, you know, the history around it? And then we'll recommend everyone check out the article as well. Um, we'll put it in the link uh, with the podcast. So yeah, Diane, can you give us a little bit, a little bit of a glimpse into that? Sure, I can start, and then I expect Carol to jump in. Um, Carol Oglesby, by the way, wrote the constitution for the organization that I study. (laughs) So it's quite an honor to get to uh, share space with her and and talk with her about it. Um, She also was a part of my dissertation research, so she's had an influence on on the work that I do, and I have a great deal of respect for her. in within this context and beyond. So the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women um, really, it came out of uh, a movement within physical education for women, uh, which was a whole department at academic institutions, physical educators that were providing uh, opportunities for girls to play and also teaching future physical education professionals um, and kinesiologists. Uh, And within 
with an increasing number of women in colleges, they wanted to play sports. They, the, the boys and men had opportunities to play intercollegiate athletics. Um, women students were often organizing uh, their own opportunities to play sports together, um, but they wanted a formalized opportunity as well. And there was a, a group of physical educators who decided to create their own version of what intercollegiate athletics could look like for these women students. And part of what I think is incredibly important to know about the AIEW, well, two things. One, of course, it was designed by women that were seeking to create a structure to support intercollegiate athletics, but they were also looking at the ways that the NCAA, with a very commercial-focused model, uh, had had faced criticism, had faced uh, had 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 exploitation of athletes and and scandal for years. And they were interested in creating a different approach and they uh, a real educational model that took seriously the idea that sport could be a part of a student's overall well-being and overall educational experience in the college years. Um, and so it wasn't <laughs> it's not small to say it was creating space for women, but it was also literally reimagining what intercollegiate sport could look like, um, a more financially sound, educationally rooted approach to uh, intercollegiate sport that supported athletes. Thanks, Diane, for that um, quick, yeah, uh, kind of synopsis. Um, Carol, is there anything you'd like to share about it just on a broad level? What was interesting to me is that I felt almost, you know, naive that I didn't know about, you know, this amazing organization. And of course, everyone knows, you know, the NCAA, but clearly, you know, from a mainstream level, I think that 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 story is missing. So I'm excited to have the chance to share this out with more folks. Um, Carol, do you want to speak a little bit about it and your time as president? Yeah, let me uh, just try to, I think Diane's a real expert on this topic, and I'm glad to um, be able to share discussion with, with her. If I could just plug in one little thing to Kim, um, I graduated from UCLA as a PE major. I'd love to know later on when your mother was there because we, I think I probably predated her, but that was an excellent department. I can say that for sure. Um, the, the I, I just uh, add a couple little things to what Diane said. Um, the women physical educators of the period, roughly from about, I'd say, 19, the early 1900s to 1950, really get, uh, they get a bad rep uh, in the writing about the history of physical education, because they're usually painted with the idea that they were anti um, high level competition or, or actually skill development at all. And um, when I was a student, from California, you know, California produced. Um, I didn't really know the women very much about the women that were the leadership. And I sort of had that concept as well, but I think that's not true. Uh, they had a philosophy which was expressed in a triangle where the base was uh, sport for all. And then there was um, competition but low level. And then at the top was elite. And they felt that men's programs had tipped the uh, triangle over and overemphasized the elite, forgetting about the sport for all boys uh, at the high school and college level. And, and they were really committed not to commit that same issue. So they wanted to have the all sport for all first. When that is in good shape, then sport 
competition among, say, colleges on an informal basis. And then when that's in good shape, we go to the elite. Well, as we all know, you never get to the elite at that point. So um, in the 60s, I would say a cadre of women, of which I was probably uh, a part, um, had had high level sport experiences outside of school. We thought it was very, very, very beneficial to women's development and and said, in effect, to the present leadership at that time, you actually are discriminating against the highly skilled, and this is not a good thing. And the women at the time that were in the leadership saw that and began to make the plans to have a program for collegiate championships. First, it was invitation. That was the Commission for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. And then so many colleges, everybody wanted to get invited. Everybody, I mean, everybody. So it was necessary to have a membership organization and a way to earn your way to the championship. And that's how the AIW was born. And I will say one other thing, and then I'll, you know, close off on this particular topic. But um, 10 years down the road, the NCAA wanted the collegiate women's programs for their own. But in the first 10 years, uh, beginning before the AIW, they actually proactively denied they had any interest in doing anything for women. Not, not, not us. That's not us. So um, the AIW was not improving on women's programs at the high level. It was creating them. There was nothing at the time. Wow. That's just like um, such an inspiring story. And uh, I see Diane that you want to jump in there, but I'm, it's just wild to me that, you know, at such a, at such an early stage, there was that kind of vision and that, uh, that, you know, foresight to not only organize, but to really like prioritize humans as a whole. And whereas the men were clearly had a different perspective, but what's interesting to me about that is that, um, Come, looking at things from, uh, cause I grew up playing team sports as well, traditional sports like basketball and soccer, but now within the culture of skateboarding, we see participation levels for youth skyrocket. And I mean, there's a number of reasons, but a lot of it is because there's a de-emphasis on competition. It's really not about winning or how good you are. And of course there's a segment of that, but, um, the center for sport and social justice did a research report, um, around that and just comparing sort of what the benefits are when you do just participate and how important that is and how that does also, in my opinion, yield, you know, progression. Cause when you're having fun and you're participating, that's ultimately going to allow you to, to continue down that path. And especially right now, it's just like so relevant on my mind because, you know, we're in the middle of the winter Olympics and we see a lot of these storylines and just sort of the difference when someone wins a medal and how excited they are, you know, the skaters, the skaters are excited even when they don't win the medal. Um, the skateboarders, and then you see sort of just like the pressure for a lot of the young girls competing at this high level. Um, but Diane, did you want to jump in and share a thought? Yeah, all I wanted to highlight, um, I sometimes forget the numbers, but just to really emphasize how, so the AIW began with around 270 some odd charter members in the first year of its existence um, under Carol's presidency. Uh, and so the first championship season was in 1972, which uh, it was, the, the organization was organizing in 71 to 72. In 72, they started their first championship season and they hosted championship, uh, hosted whole seasons and championships for the next 10 years. Uh, at its biggest, it was the biggest sport governance organization at 
over 970 colleges and universities were a part of the AIW. And at its um, peak, right at the right before it ended, they were offering 19 different sports and they were offering championships across three divisions. So they had 41 championships in 19 sports. Um, and just that number of sports is something that actually the diversity of sports uh, speaks to their commitment to an interest in a broad participation model, even when they were thinking about higher level high level competition. Um, and it's a number that the NCAA actually has never matched in terms of the, the, the number of sports offered um, under the organization. And so it's an interesting, like you said, it's a history that is remarkably unknown for how significant it actually was. When we look at that era, um, we frequently talk about Title IX, which we'll talk about uh, in a <laughs> In, in a few moments. Um, and yet on the ground, like Title IX doesn't coach a team, Title IX doesn't oversee an athletic department. Like there are, are there are thousands, hundreds and thousands of, of heroes across the country that were fighting each, at each individual institution for the, the opportunities to play for women at those institutions. And there's just so many histories left to uncover um, and people left to celebrate. Yeah, and that's a perfect uh, opportunity to kind of discuss Title IX. And um, in your article, Dan, uh, it was, I guess, not surprising, but surprising to see that just, you know, the NCAA was against including including athletics in that that law that was mostly targeted towards academics. And um, which, not surprising, but again, these are things that, I mean, I, I consider myself you know, relatively like aware of the world of women's sports and sort of being like a product of Title IX. But I think it's so important to share out, you know, the history and really understand like who was trying to do what back then, because that all plays out today. Um, and of course, you know, we saw the viral video from uh, the NCAA, you know, basketball championship tournament and the difference between the men and the women. Um, so kind of switching gears a little bit to talk about Title IX, Kim, a lot of the work you did at um, Legal Aid for Work was focused on Title IX. Can you share with us a little bit about, you know, what were some of the wins? I think taking the law angle is such an interesting aspect and um, oftentimes the only way to affect real change. Can you share a little bit about your work and specifically with Title IX? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a couple of things, I mean, again, so, you know, proud and pleased to be here. So honored to be with Diane and Carol and, and Kim yourself um, as just leaders in the gender equity sports field. So thank you. And Carol, you know, my mom was at UCLA and won the first national championship that was available in 1972. Um, and, and, you know, was essentially playing pre-Title IX as the law was passed right when she was, was there. Uh, but, she, you know, circling back to skateboarding, she skateboarded because there were no girls sport opportunities. There was no barrier because it was not organized, you know, mm, Interesting. Um, and so, the, and surfing too, she was uh, in LA and surfing and skateboarding, there were, there were no walls to climb. So you could get right in. And um, I think that's really neat about your point of non-competitive or sort of non-traditional sports and how those have been wonderful spaces for girls and kids of all kinds that want, um, you know, unconventional and more inclusive opportunity. And we can learn from those. Um, and then in terms of Title IX, you know, I, just a quick kind of backstory. Um, while I did play sports growing up and like Kim, they organized soccer, basketball, softball, I was lucky to have those chances. You know, I, I, I definitely was not aware enough of the gifts that Title IX was giving me as a kid growing up in, in the 80s and 90s. 
um, and then came to realize how serious uh, Title IX business was in college because Brown University, in fact, where I was headed for college, was, was trying to cut the women's volleyball program in the early 90s, as well as gymnastics for women. And women from the, the, the volleyball and the gymnastics teams filed the lawsuit and said, hey, look, we have too few opportunities for women at the college, at the university already. So Title IX says we should have more and, and we, you're, you're, you're putting us on the chopping block. We're going to have to file a lawsuit to keep our teams alive. And they brought the suit. It was, um, you know, really well done by some great civil rights attorneys and these brave women. It's very hard to challenge your school in these situations. Um, and they won and they saved the volleyball program. So I wouldn't have had a team to play on at Brown, but for the law. So it's very poetic and special to me. Um, admittedly, as a college person there, though, I was not fully aware of like the mechanics of the law and how it had saved my team and the standards that the Brown case actually set for decades to come. So it's just very special to me that I was very personally touched by the law. Um, so years later, I went to law school and I wasn't even sure about my pathway. I wanted to help the world. I wanted to open doors for people and give voice to those without a voice um, and came to, to find out with the fair play work that there are still millions of girls, especially BIPOC girls in low-income communities, that aren't getting the chance to play sports. And if they are playing, they're treated too often unequally. And so I thought, wow, this is a problem we can fix in our lifetime. Climate change, very challenging, very important. But, you know, I think we can transform youth sports overnight, practically, with some intentionality and persistence and, and some um, collaboration. So I started doing the fair play work about a decade decade ago. And, you know, what, what I love about it, which is interesting because it's, it's frustrating, too, is that the gender inequity that we were tackling at fair play was very obvious. You know, so it was a situation with a high school, say, in California down in San Diego, where the softball field was a lot worse than the boys baseball field. And everybody could see it. You know, it's like I have two little kids myself. I mean, they know if someone's getting three chocolate chips versus two chocolate chips, a little kid could tell you these two facilities are not equal. You don't need a legal expert or a judge. Um, so I, I like that a lot of it's very intuitive. And, you know, also the reason I do this work in general is because sports are great, but they're a vehicle for societal equity and change. Um, school sports are a microcosm of the world. You teach kids in elementary, middle and high school how to be equitable, how to be good people, how to treat everyone well. And adults obviously have that responsibility too to teach the kids they're all equally important. Um, so Title IX, a lot of people don't realize Title IX applies to K-12. They think it's a college thing. They think it's a, an NCAA reg or something like that. So part of the job I had with Fair Play was educating um, everybody, not just the you know girls and families, like these are your rights, but the schools, the athletic directors, the, co uh, the, the coaches, the superintendents, um, pretty much anyone from a 360 degree, like let's find out what Title IX actually is for say a middle school athletic program or a high school athletic program. So one of my proudest moments really was the educational component of my work. Um, while we did go to court a number of times to enforce the law, a lot of my wins in the fair play work were going to conferences and, and talking with athletic directors and coaches and youth sports leaders and saying, hey, did you ever look at the locker rooms before? Did you think about the boys and the girls offerings in terms of uniforms, equipment, supplies, scheduling. And a lot of times it's like, wow, I just haven't paid attention to it. You know, there's, there's, you know, good intentions of these leaders. They just haven't spent the time necessarily. And it doesn't even take resources or money. 
Sometimes it's just a Google spreadsheet. Oh, let's just make sure girls basketball is practicing at 3 p.m. on Wednesdays and not at 8.30 p.m. <laughs> you know, we can switch the, the boys and the girls teams day to day. So I love that there's a lot of low hanging fruit in this work. Um, and so I, I think just the happiest part of being a Title IX lawyer is that, you know, the change is so tangible and so observable in a very short amount of time. I was able to transform a lot of high schools, a lot of parks and rec, a lot of middle schools with knowledge sharing, with keys uh, for all the players involved and, and with inspiration. Like, hey, let's treat all kids, girls, everybody equitably because they take that into the workplace. They take that into their adult life. And, and I'll lastly say, you know, another passion of mine is connecting the dots that girls and boys who play high school sports make seven to eight percent higher wages as adults. So Title IX giving girls high school sport opportunity means those girls are actually making higher wages as adults compared to non-athlete peers. So I just want everyone to have that chance. Um, I said it was the last thing, but I'll also just do a quick uh, check on Title IX stats. So before Title IX, there were three, about 300,000 girls playing high school sports in the country. Now we're up to 3.4 million girls playing sports in high school level. So um, my focus is K-12, and I just want to flag that we've done so much, but we still have more to go. Um, because there's still millions of girls on the sidelines that are saying, I want to get in there and, and I need help with that. And, and that's what I'm doing with coaching core. Awesome. Thank you for that amazing work, Kim. Um, I, I always say that I am a, you know, a, a product of title nine. Cause again, growing up, I didn't even know that was a thing, right? I was born in 84 and at every turn of the road for me in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, there were women's sports teams for me to, to play on, to try out for and play on. Um, but now I'm going to say that I'm a product of Title IX and the work of AIAW now that I have a better understanding of how much you know women were actually creating that to be relevant for, for people like me. And I'm excited about... I kind of love it when the next generation has this like naive, like they didn't realize what had happened because that's kind of the goal, right? That's the goal is to create this world where everyone is has the you know, same resources. Um, and kind of on that note, I wanted to ask you, Diane. So, um, you know, we view generally title nine as this positive thing that helps many of us play sports and, you know, it's this great thing. Um, but oftentimes, you know, there's this missed narrative around how people have been left behind. And so, um, curious to talk a little bit about how title nine specifically benefited, uh, white women while leaving African-American and other BIPOC you know, athletes behind. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Absolutely. And it really plays off of what Kim was just talking about, the work that she's been doing um, and how unequal uh, access to sport is for so many different communities. And so the the way that Title IX has been in for, um, has been, have, people have complied with it is, often to add sports that are already available to white middle-class women. <laughs> and so the thing is that the more that that was happening, the less that um, the, the opportunities to be involved are expanding. So we're adding equestrian or rowing or lacrosse, uh, sports that require resources, space, uh, all kinds of access to um, a horse, <laughs> or a river, <laughs> a boat, <laughs> right? You know, the, and, and <clears throat> the more that, um, those are the sports that are being added to increase opportunities for women. It's really, it, it, I mean, it doesn't take 
very much looking to see how that is going to disproportionately advantage girls coming out of more affluent middle, upper middle class communities that have access or even know that those sports exist, quite frankly. Right. And so, um, I mean, that's one of that's one of the pieces. Um, and, and it is it is quite notable how disproportionate access to sports are when we start to look at the collegiate level. Right. Because that's like under professional. Right. That's the an elite level of athletic involvement. And it is overwhelmingly white. I had the NCAA has data. I'm not always great with pulling up my data, but um, but overwhelmingly the, the, the women student athletes were white. And therefore also that is the population that's benefiting from having athletic access to athletic scholarships. Um, and so uh, we're, we're seeing like the narrative is Title IX is helping all these women. Title IX is absolutely helping some women in lots of different ways. Um, uh, basketball has absolutely been a place where uh, particularly black women have their their participation rates have nearly doubled. Um, but let me pull up this the from the NCAA demographics. Um, lacrosse, African-American female athletes are 2.2 percent swimming, 2 percent soccer, 5.3 percent softball, 8.2 volleyball, 12 percent. Right. And these are from very recent data collected um, by the NCAA. And a lot of those numbers haven't actually changed very much from the AIW era. Um, and I will say that this is something that AIW was starting to address within its organization and in its leadership structure. Carol, again, was a part of that. Um, we actually haven't spoken about that, but that's something I talk about in my work. Uh, the racial disparities that were already evident then of course, um, have unfortunately only continued without enough disruption and without enough change to uh, access and involvement of women of color in more sports, in, in sports that require different kinds of resources. I mean, also, I think there's something to representation, right? And so, and socialization and access to seeing people who look like you involved in sports. And so, uh, women of color in some of these sports that are less representative, they are doing some amazing work to reach out. But, you know, women's basketball, you see a lot of a lot of black women, a lot of other women of color out there um, or, or some women of color out there. And that makes a difference, too, in in young girls mind and where they could see themselves participating. Right. And where what socially and culturally is a part of, is acceptable athletic participation you know, there's a lot of factors in this kind of thing, but I will say one of the things that that disturbs me the most about this is how long it took me to realize that this was a problem. And so much of that may have to do with my white middle classness, right? And what I have been taught to see and not see. And women of color have been, have been speaking about this for years. And it took uh, a remarkably long time for me to start really understanding and thinking it through and thinking about my role in advocating that we that women doesn't mean white <laughs> and women needs to be an intersectional approach to uh, thinking about equity. We need to think uh, in broader ways as we're as we're trying to remedy and, and get more people, more people involved, period. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Diane, for sharing that insight. Um, and that's really like the point of these types of conversations and the different topics that we address on this podcast is we all are, you know, unified because we love this, you know, concept of sport and, you know, moving our bodies. It's obviously makes us feel great. 
But there's also always an opportunity to look at the gaps and to look at the different points of view and figure out how to have a more of a critical lens and then talk about it. Right. So, um, I think I, I just appreciate us examining, you know, the, what's missing and not just sort of romanticizing like, yay, title nine, everything's equal, you know? Um, so on that same note, Carol, I'm curious, you know, around that era, you know, of that legislation and the work that y'all were doing at AIAW, um, can you speak a little bit about just the, uh, homophobia and stereotypes about, you know, gay women, queer women, lesbians, and how did that influence, you know, the, the narrative and the, some of the stuff that you all were facing at that time in the work that you were doing? Well, uh, Kim, um, this is uh, hard in a sense because what the, Kim Turner and what Diane say has so many sparks that I want to relate to. And it's kind of hard to keep some kind of a uh, sense of like forward movement. So I've got a lot of things in my head here. Um, unfortunately, I, I guess I call for uh, more accountability than uh, among the sport leadership than what we're, we have been talking about up to now. Um, the uh, I think the Brown decision was incredibly important. I happened, you know, happenstance brought me to Temple. And uh, at Temple, we had Hafer v. Temple, where uh, another set of student athletes brought suit because of the extreme disparities. Uh, at that time, the physical ed physical education department was administering women's athletics. And this was common back in that time. The athletic departments were dealing just with men and the NCAA and physical education slash kinesiology. It wasn't really that yet um, was administering the athletics for women. And uh, we had it at Temple and I was there. We had a dean. We had a woman who was in charge of athletics and they both stood with the students. And as this court case went up through the courts, you know, Hafer kept winning and Temple kept losing and Temple kept trying to adjust what they were doing so that when it went to the next higher court, it wouldn't be such a clear case. But it was, I mean, the student athletes were actually, they were, it was torture. Uh, it was torture for them. And unfortunately, I see that a lot of the Title IX advances have come on the basis of litigation. The, the 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 system is not just changing because they can see that it's wrong. Um, and I, I don't think that the people from the NCAA, for example, uh, you know, I'm not saying they're ugly people that said, oh, we're going to destroy these women. We have no interest in having them around. But they had beliefs, which gets to your point about homophobia and, and some of the stereotypes about women. Uh, they had beliefs about the uh, weakness or inability of women to do certain things. And so this whole press to bring women into certain kinds of roles was to them just elevating people who were incompetent into particular positions. Um, I actually, my brother and his wife, he, he's quite a bit younger than I am. They are, they, they spent their lives as high school uh, teachers and coaches here in Southern California. And um, my sister-in-law told me this story about going into the AD at this high school, big high school, great athletic programs. 
and they had some programs for um, for girls had to, of course, because of Title IX. But they didn't. She was the only woman coach out of like 20 coaches. She was the only woman coach. So she had brought this up with the AD many times. But at this one particular juncture, which was within 10 years of now um, of, of this period, she went to him and said, look, there's Title IX. You're, you're supposed to be offering equitable opportunities for coaching. I'm one out of 20. It's, somebody's going to, th- th- this has to change. And he just looked her right in the eye. I'm hearing the story from her um, and said, when somebody sues me, I'll hire a woman. But right now I've got the good coaches. These are the good coaches. So long, Charlie. So unfortunately, uh, these stereotypes, uh, some of them homophobic, uh, but also maybe just plain old vanilla misogynistic, um, that women were incompetent at, at, at certain levels or with certain sports, hadn't had the experiences or whatever. Um, I think there was a sense of a, 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 a we would I would use uh, a phraseology that doesn't make it into the research studies, but a sense of a lesbian menace that somehow women's sport was composed of tremendous proportion of lesbian women, that they were in the business of finding innocent, in quotes, what we would call cisgender women now, and somehow recruiting them into um, a lesbian lifestyle. And uh, there was even in the literature, it did make it into the literature, a concept of um, a, a, a women athlete apologetic. And the apologetic was, I'm a woman athlete, but I'm feminine. Different ways of proof of your femininity, even though you were an athlete. And so you had women basketball coaches with floor length skirts and high heels out on the court, you know, coaching a D1 basketball game. Um, women on the team with their hair and very elaborate, uh, beautiful um, styles, bows, ribbons, makeup, the whole deal. Part of trying to turn around this uh, concept that was just one piece of a big mosaic that women really don't belong here. And, um, you know, I don't think that that's all solved yet. We're still at work uh, on that, although uh, tremendous. I can't believe some of the things that have changed and 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 have been enhanced over the past uh, few years. But it's still uh, unfortunately, I think it's still um, something that's still floating around it, and it's in people's thinking. They don't really um, it, it, it runs against the grain to actually exert a new point of view because the old point of view is so firmly uh, entrenched. Yeah, I it's wild to me to hear the stories from back then and then just see them continue to play out. Currently, like, for example, um, you know, with the U.S. women's national soccer team, uh, I recently watched the their documentary LFG. And it was like that was the argument from the from USA soccer, right? Their employer that they sued. And they said, yeah, women are just less capable. <laughs> They're like, you're still using that narrative, which is just wild. And it's almost like part of me is like, that's just almost humorous that that's what these men or whoever, you know, uh, is, is thinking. But then the other part of me sometimes is just like, wow, this is just kind of a bummer. Like how many generations are we going to have to keep saying the same thing? Um, and how do we transform the viewpoints of these folks who clearly have inherited these conversations and they're so sort of stuck in their, in their views. 
Um, and that's kind of like, I'd love to just open it up to any of you, the, the panel, you know, like what, how do you find that balance between affecting change and then continuing to find the inspiration and the motivation to do that work, but then see examples where sometimes it's just like, man, like, wow, like nothing's changed, like everything has changed and nothing's changed, you know, like what keeps you all going and kind of how do you wrap your head around, you know, all of it? Um, I just, first of all, thank you, Carol, for those points. I really resonate with me in, in many ways. Um, but, you know, to Kim, to your question, I mean, so I've been doing, you know, this advocacy work for over a decade and, and working in government and, you know, sort of advocacy work and civil rights, social justice for two decades now. And systems change is a huge passion of mine. And, you know, I wear a lot of hats, like I'm a trainer, I'm a lawyer, I'm a youth coach, I'm a mom to little kids, I'm a community member, you know. And what I've been doing, you know, to keep going is, is the windows and doors approach. You know, what I've learned over the years is that it's not one fix. I mean, it, yes, I do think that the cases, the litigation have been critical and it's sad, you know, it's sad that it's taken these cases to change some of these institutions. And, and I think it will continue to be required. But I also know what I love doing is the combined approach where, you know, I'm, I'm training California's athletic directors in a couple of months and, you know, I'm going to come with, with the inspiration and with the reminder of the mandate, because we do have a requirement of gender equity and the tools, you know, the low hanging fruit, like, Hey, here's a simple free tool you can use to look at schedules and uniforms and supplies. And then, you know, hand you a flyer with girls playing volleyball or basketball, because too often you see that flyer that says, you know, come and play, but you don't see that picture of the girl or the BIPOC girl in particular who, who doesn't see herself at that tryout, doesn't feel welcome, doesn't feel part of the space. So it's just so many different types of tools. It's like, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, Swiss army knife is required, I think, to keep going. And for me, I feel motivated by the little wins, you know, in the sense that like I've helped a little girl get onto a co-ed flag football team in her park and rec who wasn't getting playing time because her coach, you know, thought of her as less than, and, and the park and rec was really receptive to my conversation with them. California has a gender equity and sports law for park and rec, which is pretty special and exciting that other States don't have. Um, but then other aha moments, like some of the cases that I've had for several years with school districts across the country, I'm good friends with those athletic directors now and those coaches and those lawyers, you know, and, and they did see the light to some degree. They did, you know, took something, but you know, at the end of it, we're, we're, we're having like good calls, good conversations. I'm referring them to other areas. They're referring me to other areas. So, you know, just keeping on, keeping on is part of it. Um, and, and the network, I will say when I hear Diane and you and Carol talking, like it energizes me so much. I'm like, let's all talk again. Let's have a conference, you know, let's bring a hundred more people. You know, this is so doable, but yes, I think when I'm having those frustrating moments, we're like, oh my gosh, why do these girls don't have a locker room and the boys do like, what year is it? How is this still happening? But then I connect with my network, my, my, my family, my big family across the country of, of advocates and, and equity folks and youth coaches and that are doing it. And I get uh, new energy to keep going. Thanks, Kim. Carol or Diane, did you want to share any thoughts? Well, I think one of the things uh, that Kim is implying is, is uh, affiliating with organizations of people um, that are committed to common goals. Um, 
I, I really think, uh, just as Kim was saying, that um, what's kept me going through a lot of years um, is membership with certain organizations that have um, they've accomplished milestones along the way and enable you to feel like, OK, that's one. We got that one. We're, and you have to sometimes go back, circle back and do it again. But um, to, to, to have a sense of uh, support from people around you is very, very important. Um, I do. I'm doing a lot of work now with people in developing countries. And um, I think one of the worst problems that the women that are doing that work in those countries face is that they feel completely alone. And it's really hard to um, enable them to somehow find a, a networks so that they have that, that the sense of aloneness is gone or mitigated. Absolutely. Um, Diane, your thoughts? So many thoughts. Uh, <laughs> I have the, the why AIW matters uh, brainstorm going on on my page here. So just picking up on a couple of the things that were just said, but to me, this history matters and I want people to know more about it so much because just the fact that there was once an entire intercollegiate athletic governance organization that was almost like for, for a while there, uh, caveat in a second. For a while there, it was led, all those departments were led by women. <laughs> it wasn't a question whether women could lead athletic departments. They were. And indeed, like they, they were like physical educators who then said, somebody needs to lead the department. And someone said, okay, I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> and they would step into the role and they would ask around. And hopefully some of them worked at institutions where the men's athletics director were really supportive and encouraging. Not always the case, but sometimes it was. And it's important to know that as well, where they didn't see women's athletics as a threat. They saw it as great, cool, like join in, uh, let's go. Um, there's there's plenty of, ex there are examples of, of really great um, situations. But so, so, you know, for a span of 10 years, it was not un unusual to have women in athletic leadership, whether that was at the coach level or the athletic director level, right? And even if, for those women, it was still lonely and they were still in a hostile environment where every time they went to argue for more uh, resources, they got pushback. They got told you're lucky to have what you have, right? They still had this governing organization led by women who got together every year and it was a community. And that I was going to say just to what we were just talking about, right? It was a community then where for some of those folks, that was the only time during the year where they could actually talk more openly and honestly and get some ideas and strategies and resources was at the AIW Delegate Assembly and, and think through the, the philosophy that they were trying to put in practice um, that, that increasingly became, like as athletic departments at institutions merged, then they were operating under two different athletic governance organizations that had really different philosophies. And it was, it was, it was complicated, it was a mess. It was, they had to get figured out somehow. <laughs> We can talk more about how it ended, but uh, they, that community part is so much of what also got destroyed um, when the NCAA took, essentially took over women's sports and the AIW ended and plenty of, of athletic leaders at that point left and they, or they were 
never promoted into the athletic director position, despite having been athletic directors. They became a secondary athletic director. Women's sports became secondary to men's sports in the NCAA structure. There was no guarantee of equal representation of gender on committees within the NCAA structure. And that those networks had to be reestablished um, of women. And, you know, I, I spoke with um, Charlotte West and, and Dr. Christine Grant after, when I was interviewing, doing my research. Um, and they became a part of the women's athletics director organization that existed. And it was uh, at some point it became a bunch of old AIW folks getting together to try and influence some positive change within the NCAA. So you can't, you can't push people out and they don't go away forever. <laughs> they come back and these good ideas come back and thank God for that. Um, but also the, again, thinking about representation, when I spoke with Dr. West uh, at Southern Illinois, she was talking about how in her, as, as she was the women's athletics director there for a number of years, and then the, uh, involved in athletic leadership when the NCAA was in charge uh, and she taught classes. And she said, you know, when, when AIW existed, in my sport leadership and sport management classes, I had women, uh, a, a good number of women in the room along with men. And after that, a few years later, I started realizing that my classes were overwhelmingly men. And she said, I, you know, well, uh, oh, I guess that makes sense. They're not seeing women in these leadership positions anymore, right? And so this is where like, to me, the importance of the AIW is, is to, to let people know that this happened, that it's not that sort of narrative of progress we like to tell about history of we're always getting better. I want to say like, actually, no, like, no, it goes in cycles. And the more we can learn about what came before and how, how that worked, we have more, like I said, more heroes, more people to look to and learn from um, that, that have been pushed out of history. And it's worth asking questions why <laughs> they have stories to tell, <laughs> um, you know, Talk to Carol, <laughs> right? This is, yeah. So those are some of my things. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think just that going back to that leadership piece around, you know, like, like actually affecting change and then transforming, you know, the, the next generation, um, just on, even on the ground level with like, for example, just, you know, from my world and skate like a girl, we do youth camps, you know, for all gender youth. And so, and oftentimes, you know, especially cause we're in the Bay area, you know, we have a mom that will sign up her son and intentionally know that he's going to be a minority in a camp of 20 kids and actually wanting him to experience what that's like in a sports environment. And then of course, having the, the instructors, the coaches, you know, um, that are women and or trans folks and like how that changes his, you know, experience of, what it means to be, you know, a skateboarder and athlete. So I think like just even on the ground level, you know, I think it's so important women in leadership positions, whether that's coaches or, you know, making decisions, business owners, media, all that stuff. I think that's kind of like my hope for that next piece. Cause I think, um, although not everyone's there yet in terms of athlete representation, I think that has improved a lot, but what about the people behind the scenes? you know, and, and where can, you know, we create more of the, that visibility. So there's, you know, these, these possibility pathways and models. Um, I'm curious for, uh, kind of moving on just into, in the next question that I have, um, for all of you is, uh, for, I'm sure at some point in your research, but also just in your personal work and your personal experiences, playing sports or coaching or doing the research, um, you know, there's times where you definitely felt othered or you felt, 
you know, these oppressive barriers. Um, always helpful to hear different people's kind of like uh, perspective around what is helpful in those moments. So for any of our listeners, you know, regardless of what aspect of their identity or just why they feel maybe not accepted in their world um, when it comes to sport, or even just like their daily lives, like any advice um, that you can share things that you've kind of embodied along the way that made a difference for you to be able to feel, I don't know if it's necessarily about feeling accepted because sometimes who cares if you're not accepted, but how do you continue to move forward and not lose that inspiration in those moments where you feel very unaccepted? (laughs) Does that make sense? Uh, I'm happy to jump in on that real quick. Um, so a couple of things I, you know, I, with coaching core and, and soon to be positive coaching Alliance, you know, we, we obviously focus a whole lot on the coach as, and as Diane mentioned, you know, title nine, isn't necessarily coaching a team. It, you know, it's a law it's impactful. It might teach the coach how to approach or the athletic director or the institution, but the actual coach, the person, the personality that the, the charisma of that person is so critical to make a program welcoming, inclusive, um, you know, gender equitable, raci- racially equitable, socioeconomically equitable, um, because those coaches are tapping the player and, and helping the player develop and bringing that player back for next season. Um, women coaching, obviously. So in the youth sports uh, scene, a lot of people don't know that amongst, say, like K-8 coaches, K kindergarten to eighth grade, there's about 25% of youth coaches that are women. Um, and it, that's so low, you know, and we don't talk about that enough. I mean, it's definitely very low in the college space as well, but you know, K eight. So the pipeline to sports is through young kids getting access. And that's something I'm very passionate about is like, how do we get a little girl who's three or four or five years old to be playing with the ball, to be watching a girl's sport competition, getting inspired, watching women on television, you know, same with boys or kids of any gender, but you know, I'm really interested in how to start earlier for girls, because by college, by high school, by even middle school, it feels too late, especially for girls in low-income areas where it's so daunting to try out at like, you know, age 10 or 11 for a basketball team when you've never bounced a ball, you've never caught a ball. So I just would say one thing in, in terms of otherizing is women not feeling like they can coach, not feeling welcome in the space, or as athletic directors or other kind of sports leaders, you know, not feeling comfortable. So I would say one thing that's helped me is people tapping me and saying, hey, you play volleyball at the college level, come and coach our team. Just hearing that for women is powerful. You know, even top level women are not necessarily thinking they're ready to do it. You know, and, you know, women, I know a lot of women that are like, well, I need a PhD or, or two PhDs to, be, to do that. You know, we're really wanting a high level of, of preparation. But we also know that guy out there that's like, I've never played soccer. I'm going to be the soccer coach. So, you know, preparation's still good. I would, I would say, and coaching core has a ton of training and support for coaches who've never coached before, but I would say tap somebody in your network, tap everybody in your network who has not coached women, especially BIPOC women, especially and say, you can do it. I'll support you. Here are the tools, but representation does matter. Those girls and those kids seeing these women coaching is very powerful. So, so tapping people and then tapping yourself too, in the sense that I just was on another panel. I will say, I won't say the league, but a top level referee from a top major national league woman who was like going into her games. And right before she goes in, she says to herself, I belong here. I belong here. And she has like a mantra to herself and she is like, oh my gosh, super incredible professional. But she has to give herself that message, that mantra, that, that communication that I matter. I belong here. I'm 
I can do it, you know? So I just, we do need to kind of coach ourselves as well when we're feeling those otherized moments and, and find those wellsprings. And I'll circle back lastly to the networks we talked about, where if you're having that moment of feeling otherized or you see other people being otherized, like get the networks together, you know, text a friend, <laughs> go to a conference, come to a panel, you know, find the resources out there. So whatever you can do to, to build a network, because to Carol's point, people do feel alone all too often. And yet, no, there's, there's thousands, there's millions of people that probably feel similarly across the, the world. So let's just tap into those sources of support and keep trudging forward. Thank you, Kim. Carol, how about you? I mean, as someone who's been changing the game for a long time and, you know, in a time where it really was not common, you know, and, and now we, and there's this era of, you know, at least for me, I do feel like there's a lot of examples um, for you. What has kept you going in those moments where you feel you felt very otherized? Well, I, I think that um, everybody on the panel has expressed, I, I think, the idea that they had parents or a family that was supportive. And I can't I just I can't believe how lucky I was that to be born to um, a mother that played uh, state high school basketball in Oklahoma in the 30s. And that was the highlight of her life. She told me that she didn't even say that we children were the highlight of her lives or her husband. It was the fact that she played in the state high school. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thanks, mom. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I was I, you know, we lucky not everybody's got that uh, good fortune. Uh, but I do think there's only one way to uh, approach this, and that is. In every instance, I think, in every instance that we have as an opportunity, it would be to expose, to to, to put, help young people or any age people, really, but especially young people we're talking about, uh, in situations where they around, they're around people that are different, children that are different. Um, another sort of complete lucky break on my part was... Um, moving to Philadelphia as a faculty member at Temple. Temple sits in the middle of uh, North Philadelphia, which is predominantly African-American. Uh, and, and, and I didn't even know at the time that this was something that would impact on my life. And it, it just changed me tremendously. Um, I'll just say a really quick thing. Um, as a person who was interacting a lot with women athletes and uh, both men and women athletes, but especially women athletes, they were telling about, you know, in Philly, you, you, they would play against uh, schools on the main line, like Swarthmore, Bryn Mawr. These are uh, very affluent, um, com completely white areas. And so the teams from Temple that were predominantly African-American would go there for a field hockey game or a basketball game. And they, they told me, in classes about how the officials, they were so ready to call a foul on any little touch that an, a Temple player might uh, engender. I mean, in basketball, and you're going up for a rebound, people are bumping and elbowing and whatever. Fouls would always be called on the Temple player. There was this sense up oh, these black players, they're going to be so rough. We're going to really have to call this game tight. And, and so, uh, you know, things like that were not in my head. So I guess I'm just saying, if you can have your child be playing with 
kids, a, a, a little girl that is playing in a hijab, um, who's uh, Asian, who's uh, maybe kind of like has a hairstyle that's purple and her purple hair and and hardly, you know, in a square cut or whatever. Um, we, we just have to find ways to uh, allow difference to become what's commonplace rather than to um, to live in enclaves, which I think especially it is uh, white people, uh, I think, for the most part, and the middle and upper classes that have the capacity to isolate themselves or to, to be uh, continually interacting with people like themselves rather than with per difference. And I, I think um, somehow or other, we got to break down the, the the doors of difference. I agree. And I do think that's like this unique aspect of sport is that if you are lucky enough to be, you know, um, you know, have the opportunity to play with folks that don't look like you or are different in some way, that really gives you the opportunity at a young age to develop that empathy. Uh, Cause I remember even for me, like uh, when I was in high school in late nineties, early two thousands, like it, what, there wasn't a lot of, you know, queer role models and it definitely was not a thing to be out and so later when my, my good friends that I grew up playing team sports with came out, I didn't have any like, wow, like that's weird or crazy or they must be this, that I was just like, no, I know them as a teammate and as a friend. And so if that, I didn't have, there was nothing there for me. And I always think about, okay, well, if you didn't have those opportunities to interact, maybe there's just a lot of fear that comes up that people have in that, you know, kind of ends up expressing itself in, you know, homophobia or sexism or racism, because there just wasn't that exposure and that access. And that is what I do feel like sport can bring us together in that way that other, maybe there aren't opportunities in other aspects of life at a young age. Um, but Diane, I also wanted to give you the chance to share any wisdom for our listeners. So I've been um, thinking about this a lot with my students recently and I had them read a piece by Bell Hooks that talks, it's called Theory, by, Theory as Liberation. And she talks about the, her own experience as a child questioning norms and observing things that she didn't think were fair or right or expectations of her as a little girl that were different than other people, the little boys expectation, right? Asking questions that usually got some pushback. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's when you know you're onto something. <laughs> and I think, and, and it's just this, it's this wonderful reminder um, that until we're taught otherwise, I feel like people tend to have an innate sense of like acceptance and inclusion, like, and then we're taught to start dividing. Um, and so I want to encourage, it's why I like working with students, ask questions. Like if you're noticing something, there's probably something to notice. And just because you get pushback doesn't mean to, okay, they're the adults probably right. Um, I got to say, I've been having, um, I, I, that's sport is one of, is it is, is very wrapped up with dominant ideologies in society around masculinity and, and that nationhood and all of these things and tradition. And yet, if we say that like gender equity sounds really great or even gender equality sounds really great, but what we're actually doing is not that in sport ever and rarely. And so uh, keep asking questions about it. If we actually are saying that we think that um, you know, girls and boys should have 
have equitable opportunities. Well, then promote all of the teams at a school equitably for a year and tell me what happens. Like, I just feel like we've never actually seen that. We've never we've never really given this a chance. And we're pushing back against a, a legacy of tradition around certain dominant men's sports, particularly football, that gets a lot of attention and, and play. And some of those football players don't even realize how different it is for everybody else, right? So all of a sudden they start noticing that and going, oh, well, that isn't fair at all. <laughs> you know, I feel like that's why I like, that's why I work with young people that they have an openness and a willingness. And I, and I just want to say, keep that. To stick with it, learn and and then playing off of what Carol just said, you know, learn about the things you don't know, um, and then be open to being wrong, be open to tripping up and learning something from that experience, and connecting with people who look different than you, and learning from people who look different than you. Thank you, Diane. That's great insight. Um, I wanted to wrap up here just with, uh, I got two questions here. I want to decide which one I want to ask, but, um, we kind of touched on this in that last question around like, how can we show up and be an ally? Um, I also want to acknowledge that this episode was the topic was gender equity. Um, and we focused primarily on cis women and we have another episode in this season, um, where we dive deeper into, you know, what's going on for trans athletes and, and anti-trans legislation and culture, and also recommend listening to, uh, season one, our episode where we chat with Ann Lieberman from athlete ally. Um, because, you know, if we're truly talking about gender equity, we're looking at all gender identities and we have a whole, a dedicated, it's just a whole nother, you know, deep dive into that. Um, but on that note, I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on how can we be allies? We've talked a little bit, we've touched on this idea of allyship, right? Um, where we all have various privileges and, um, yeah, your thoughts, you know, Diane, you said being curious, I think, and then Carol really like going out of your way to expose yourself, to be surrounded by people who don't look like you, or you can't relate to, um, any other thoughts around how anyone who's listening, you know, can, actually take on allyship when it comes to other athletes, maybe even on their own team or in their own, you know, school. Um, and just any advice around that? Well, why don't I go first on this one? Um, uh, I, I, I think, uh, Caucasian people have a real, um, you got a challenge. We, we have challenges in front of us. And I, I think that first off you got that we have to um, open up the idea that um, th there's racism that exists um, in the water. It's in the water. And so people that say, um, uh, you know, I'm not racist uh, or try to say, look at this and this and this I do. I'm not racist. That's it's really I feel that, that that's an untenable position. You You just say, OK, it's in the water. I got it. And so then you get educated about what the it is. And I, I found a book called White Fragility really helpful. But there's a lot of different ways, different paths that people might take. But um, there's just, um, I'll just recount one little episode. Uh, and, and age gets involved here. I mean, we all are other in some way. And, and, and we, we just have to become, build up the capacity to become aware of the otherness. Um, I was I was supposed to I was asked 
by the sports psychology group to do a quick um, a, a, a chapter on inclusion uh, for a sports psychology training manual. And um, so I thought I can't do this as a white person. Um, it, and fortunately, I am a lesbian. So at least I had some insight into some of the gender um, identity disparities and so on. So, But I, I invited an African-American person to be a, a co-developer with me of this chapter. But we kept, you know, writing things and the people that were in charge kept saying, well, we think you should do it like this. And we'd submit another piece of the chapter. We think you should do it. And finally, I was thinking, you know what, if you really wanted to write this chapter yourself, why didn't you write it in the first place? Just I don't this. We've gone through four or five, whatever rounds of this. It's too much. OK, so. I just wrote them a letter, the people that were in charge, and I would try to be tactful a little bit, but I basically said that. And what I realized after it was already done and gone was that I am an older person. I have a, uh, I have a background in this field. I'm white. I have so many ways that I, um, but I didn't think about uh, consulting my co-author with going off on these people about how I was unhappy with how this chapter was being handled. And that was an example, which I, you know, I just saw, but too late. Um, it, it all, everything went fine. But I mean, you, you, you don't, you, we just, when you've got these uh, areas of lack of awareness, you don't see it. It's right there in front of your face. You don't see it. So um, it's a continual, this is a lifetime project of, of trying to um, work on the isms. Thank you, Carol. That is such valuable, you know, um, insight is just like what I got out of that was just really stopping sometimes and just listening or asking. And I think for many of us who are, you know, doers and go-getters, um, we don't often, I don't often stop and listen. But then when I do mess up or get feedback, then I can stop and listen as well. And like, I think encouraging failure around, I mean, we always teach kids, you know, skateboarding, it's like, you got to fail to succeed, but sports in general, um, is just to embrace that failure and then being okay with messing up and being like, wow, I didn't stop to listen that time. Right. Um, Kim, did you have any thoughts you wanted to share with yeah. us? Well, I'm so glad you raised allyship. I mean, you know, I think that the stats are, I want to say the, say high school or middle school, high school level, we've got almost 90% men as athletic directors. I think it's in like, depending on who you ask, like, you know, 80% something men, I think very few women and very few women of color. So allyship is critical because if, for example, in high school sports, we're going to instill gender equity. We need men to be part of the equation in the game. And, and I've been talking a lot with colleagues this year in Title IX's 50th anniversary is this year on June 23rd about celebration and forwarding the movement. And it requires everyone. It's not the work of just girls and women. It's not the work of, you know, just, you know, men or boys, it's, or cisgender or transgender, you know, it's everybody together and, you know, and allying for each other and, and for those who do not have a voice. I mean, one of my pleasures as a Title IX attorney is, you know, I don't charge my clients. I get to advocate for them for free, you know, as an attorney, I mean, to give the voiceless a voice and, you know, a middle school girl a voice, you know, with an institution that may have overlooked her needs in her basketball or volleyball soccer program. So, you know, to be an ally for her, you know, is an incredible gift for me. Uh, but I would also just say, you know, a quick story that might speak to the listeners out there. One of the best experiences I had in the last 10 years was a an athletic trainer 
who in his kinesiology program learned about Title IX in one of the segments of his program. You know, it was just one class, one seminar, and he learned how the law works for middle school, high school, girls, college, women, uh, and for everybody, because it's a gender equity law. It's not a law for girls and women, it's gender equity. Um, so let's remember that. Uh, but anyway, he I met him in a restaurant, like a Denny's, and his daughter, who was a wrestler, was having a problem with gender inequity at her school. She was having to wear singlets that the, the boys wore and it wasn't fitting her and uniforms were terrible. She didn't have coaches, you know, all these issues. But I just love that this guy who he was a wrestler himself and a kinesiology major and athletic trainer, he looked like he was a WWF wrestler. He was this big guy, tattoos everywhere, you know, really kind of a dude. And yet he was really advocating for his daughter and he had sons and daughters in his family. And I loved as an ally in the sports world, especially given his job, he was there for equity. And, and uh, we were able to work on making changes at that school together in a really collaborative way that worked well at the end with the school. It's a success story. So I just want to, you know, thank him and thank all, you know, the folks out there, no matter the gender identity and expression, their place in this world, that like coming together to work together and also flag that we have to stand up for others who may not have that place and that voice. And, and that's something I'm very attuned to is, is how to lift those voices up in particular. Um, so educating ourselves, educating anyone around us, stopping and listening and learning and not presuming we have all the knowledge and, and all the tools is critical. Lawyers sometimes get that rap. <laughs> they know everything and they surely don't. Um, and then keep, you know, just allyship, keeping at it. You know, it's not just reading one article or one seminar. It's about like day in and day out being there at the table, helping, supporting, lifting up and, and keeping on going forward. Thank you, Kim. Well, I can't, believe that an hour and 30 minutes just went by, but we are at the very end of our time here. I wanted to close this out with just um, a quick question from each of you or to hear your answer is um, for folks that are interested in learning more about this topic, whether you're you know an expert or completely new to the conversation, um, can each of you recommend any resources, whether it's a link or, or sorry, a book or a film or an article or whatever it is, this is your chance to plug away and we'll do our best to share this out um, in the description of the podcast. Definitely recommend re reading Diane's article at the very least. So we'll link that. Um, any other quick recommendations that anyone wants to pop in on? Diane, you got one? Sure. I have a, I have a number. I'll just list them. Um, the Women's Sports Foundation has a lot of information on their website. The Black Women in Sport Foundation is out of... Uh, out of Pennsylvania, out of Philly, I believe um, some of the folks that Carol worked with. It's a fantastic resource, a really amazing organization. Been around for a number of years. Uh, the NCAA really does have demographic data. You can break down by divisions and sports and um, gender and race and athletic leadership positions. They do have data you can start mining and actually using. Athlete Ally has um, a lot of resources for LGBTQI inclusion in sport and their own athletic equity index, I believe it's called, um, working on giving information about how schools are doing in terms of equity um, and support. 
And in terms of um, my most recent favorite documentary on the era that I study, and I'm a very hard critic on this, The Rise of the Wahine uh, Champions Champions of Title IX, which recounts the year that your mom won the volleyball uh, championship just from the perspective of the team that played against her in that final game. (laughs) It's a fantastic documentary that gets into um, some of the women of color that are at the heart of Title IX passing, Patsy Mink and Donna Thompson. And it's um, a really amazing, I think, beautifully done documentary that gets at a lot of the community and ways that women negotiate power and advocacy and education. And it's great. Thank you so much, Diane. We will do our best to get all those links in the description. Carol, any recommendations? Yeah, that's okay. 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 Diane covered a lot. How about Kim? Anything to add? Yeah. You know, I, I think all that Diane said, I'd also just say, read about Title IX, you know, anywhere. Uh, you don't have to read a whole book. I, I do find there's, a, again, a, for kinesiology majors that may become trainers, athletic trainers, uh, sports program directors, um, coaches, just read a fact sheet, you know, in the sense that like, I, you know, if you, if you survey most people, they wouldn't know what the law was or what it means day to day for a middle high school college program, though there are some very knowledgeable institutional folks that have studied up and thank you for doing that. So uh, fair play for girls in sports. My old nonprofit has a lot of really, we tried to make a lot of brochures that were really accessible to a girl, to a parent, to a coach, anybody could read a brochure, nothing too long, too wonky, too dense. Um, I'd also just plug um, National Women's Law Center has some great Title IX athletics guidance. It's a little more dense, you know, and a little more technical, but I think really helpful. Um, And then I know there's a new documentary coming out from ESPN 5050 from Dawn Porter. And I've seen the previews and and I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to really lift up the conversation. So, you know, video is often a good, as as Diane mentioned, another great documentary. Um, Video is a great way to inspire people. Uh, so I think that that will be a great series. And then, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, just like, I just have to plug watching, reading, go to the local high school girls basketball game, you know, watch women's sports. I mean, it, you know, I'm a nonprofit person. I'm not a business person, but I'm like me buying that WNBA hat means these women can you know play and hopefully get higher salaries and women's hockey, you know, uh, women's soccer, tennis, you know butts in seats, tickets for women's games help the rest of the food chain of, you know, girls down the line in kindergarten, in middle school and high school to play. So I think even just the sports industry, industry supporting women in that is, is very effective. I watch 50% home, uh, sports at home in my household. We make sure to watch 50% women's sports, 50% men's sports, do it at the local bar or restaurant, change the channel. You know, if there's 10 TVs at the local sports bar, five of them can be women's sports. There's a lot of women's sports on TV now. So I just want to flag that like, there's so many little ways that aren't even like they're fun ways. That's such a cool thing is there are fun ways to support girls and women's work and coach, 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 please coach. Um, so coaching core positive coaching Alliance has lots of tools. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I mean, I personally am very inspired and there's clearly so many ways to keep continuing to move the needle and um, such an honor to speak to this amazing panel. Um, Thank you all so much for your time. And especially Carol, just, you know, living legends, like I appreciate your time and just everything you've done for all of us, you know, along the way and the next generation. So thanks again. Uh, Hopefully listeners, you enjoyed our conversation and learned something and feel inspired. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks everyone. Have a good one. 
Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University East Bay. It was produced by McKenna Duda, Kim Muzi, Nikhil, Karnar, and Kashal Sheshadri. The music is by Marby Miller. A big thank you to the Center for Sport and Social Justice co-directors, Dr. Matthew Atencio and Dr. Missy Wright for their support. Funding for Making Moves was provided by Cal State University East Bay and the Center for Sport and Social Justice. Make sure to catch all six episodes of Making Moves, streaming now on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.